You are listening to audio from Pastor Mark Driscoll. To find more helpful content like this, as well as daily devotions, Ask Pastor Mark videos, resources for leaders, and much more, visit markdriscoll.org. While there, you can also make a donation that will help support the ministry and subscribe to continue getting Bible-based teaching. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please feel free to come and see Pastor Mark at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. All right, as we kick into John chapter 1 today, I want you to think about somebody who's kind of a hero to you. Somebody you look up to, you learn from, somebody that you aspire to be like, somebody that you hold in high regard. There tend to be these people in our life that they live great lives. Sometimes they're athletes, sometimes they're musicians, sometimes they're political leaders, sometimes they're business leaders, sometimes there are people who just do extraordinary things. They leave a big footprint in their wake and they make a difference in human history and we tend to hold them in high regard. These are kind of our heroes. And as a result, when we find someone who lived a great life, we tend to examine that life more carefully and closely. This is where we get biographical books and movies trying to examine the lives of those who have gone before us and done a great job at living their life and leaving their legacy. That being said, other than Jesus, because Jesus, of course, is in a category unto himself. Other than Jesus, if you could only pick one person As the greatest person in the history of the world, the most important person to learn from their life example, just think about it for a moment. Who might you nominate today? Some of you would say George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or Mother Teresa or or maybe a Billy Graham or, or maybe a Winston Churchill. These people come to mind. Martin Luther King Jr. We would have these heroes that we look to and we, we learn from. There's one person in the Bible, of course, as I said, other than Jesus, who is called the greatest person in the history of the world. That's a massive statement. Jesus himself says, I think it's in Luke chapter 7, around verse 29, of all the people who have ever lived, None is greater than a guy named John the Baptizer. It's Jesus' cousin. There's about nine different Johns in the Bible, if memory serves me correct. The book we're studying is written by a guy named John the Beloved. And who we're talking about today is another guy named John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer, Jesus says, is the greatest person in the history of the world. That's a massive statement. That's a, and you didn't study him in college, Amen. You didn't learn about him in school. Nobody talks about him, but he's the greatest person according to Jesus in the history of the world. The angel Gabriel over in Luke chapter one, verse 15, before he was even born, said he would be, quote, great in the sight of God. Great in the sight of God. What makes John great? Well, his life is rather interesting. He's not a political leader. He's not an athlete. He's not a musician. He's not a politician. He doesn't rule over an empire. He doesn't travel very far. He doesn't make much money. He never has a wife. He never has any kids. What kind of great life is that? The kind of things that you and I aspire to for greatness are not the things that he possessed. Here's what he did have, the spirit of God. The spirit of God is the key to John's greatness. It said that he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb and that the hand of the Lord was upon him. This is the language of the Bible. That is that God was at work in power through the life of John. He not only had the power of God's presence through the Holy Spirit, he also fulfilled God's calling and destiny for his life. This is how you can be great. Not great in the eyes of the world, but great in the eyes of Jesus. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and fulfill the life that God intends for you, whatever that might be. That's the great story. I don't know if you can tell this. I'm hopped up on cold meds. I'm not feeling very good. I can't wait till the resurrection of the dead when I can breathe and I'm six foot tall. Until then, however, I'm going to do all I can today to tell you about John, the greatest man who lived in the history of the world and how you can live by the same power of the Holy Spirit and you can live a great life that honors and glorifies God and not just makes a dent, but makes a difference. So we're going to learn a couple of things, two things about John. We're going to learn three things about Jesus. Here's the first thing we learn about John. Humility helps you understand yourself. Two of the most important things you can learn in the Bible, who is God? Who are you? Those are two important things. Who is God? Who are you? Humility allows you to learn yourself. The two things we're going to learn about John is humility and service. He's a humble servant. And it says this, John chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. This is the testimony of John. 
When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Here comes the committee. Uh, He confessed, he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, are you Elijah? They're trying to figure out who he is. He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Let me say this about John. John is a bit of an outlaw cowboy. He's an Arizona boy. We'll just call him that, right? He was Jesus' homeschooled rural cousin. That's who he was. He lived out in the desert in the middle of nowhere. He ate bugs and honey, bugs and honey. That's that's a rural kid, amen? That's a rural, he'd never seen a grocery store, never been to Costco. Bugs and honey, that was his diet. He wore a Jedi robe. He was raised by godly parents. All this is in the Greek. He was raised by godly parents. He lived out in the woods. And he was kind of a wild child. He was the kind of guy, steel-toed boots, ride a Harley, had a tattoo, listened to Josie Wales, and didn't always make it to school on time. He's that kind of kid, all right? He comes from outside the institution. He comes from outside the establishment. He's from Prescott. He's that kind of kid, okay? He's that kind of kid. He's that kind of kid. Now, what happens is there's this religious institution organization. And if you want to be a leader, you got to go through the steps. It's like, you got to go through Christian school and then you got to go through Bible college. Then you got to go through seminary and then you get approved and then you get to go teach. John didn't do any of that. He just showed up and started yelling at people. Why am I yelling at you? Because it's biblical. Somebody has to yell at us for us to get attention, right? So John comes yelling at people. He doesn't even have a church. He's yelling at people outside. How many of you, if you've seen this guy and you think he's not anointed. He's crazy, right? It's a fine line between anointed and crazy. And John rides that line. He's outside yelling at perfectly religious, spiritual, moral people to repent and be baptized. That's what John does. He's a bit of an outlaw cowboy. So what happens is all the religious types, they're trying to figure out who is this guy. We don't know him. He didn't get any permission. So they get a committee together because that's what religious people do. They form committees. Right? And so they tuck their shirt in, they press their dockers, they tie their loafers, they all get in their Prius, they part their hair, they grab their clipboard, and they ride out looking in the middle. Where is John? We heard he's out in the woods. Oh, I hear someone yelling. That's probably John. So they, they go find John and they come with their clipboard. Okay, John, the, uh, the, we're, we're, the, uh, we're the committee reporting to the oversight committee and the committee sent us with a list of questions. They got a list of questions. Okay, first question, John, are you the Christ? The anointed Messiah, the one we've all been waiting for. He says, nope, not me, wrong guy. Okay, well, next one. Are you by chance Elijah? Are you Elijah? I always think religious people sound like Ned Flanders. I don't know why, just how I think. (laughs) Are you Elijah? Because see, Elijah was a prophet who didn't die. He was taken right up to heaven in a chariot. That's first class. That is first class flying right there. Boom, there he goes. So they thought maybe... Round trip ticket, eventually Elijah will come back. Are you Elijah, John says? Nope. Okay. Are you the prophet? Because back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses said that not only a prophet, but the prophet was coming. We've all been waiting. Are you him? He said, no. How many of you, even if you knew this wasn't you, you would at least said, oh, I don't know, maybe. Because there's a lot of bennies, right? <laughs> right? There are... Are you the ruler of the world? Well, I don't know. <laughs> How much does it pay? Right? I mean, it's <laughs> it takes a lot of humility to know who you are, to know who you're not, to know what your place is, to know what your place is not. At this point, we would say John was trending. Right? He had gone viral. He walks out of the woods and everybody's paying attention to him and crowds are surrounding him. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Now here come the record label execs. You want to sign a deal? Here comes the, here comes the book publishers. You, you, want to, you want to write? Here comes the tour managers. You want to take this show on the road? And John says, nah. He's a poor guy. He could make a lot of money. He's an obscure guy. He could be really famous. He was from a little town and he could have been a big deal. And he says, no. Why? One of my pastors, I've got some pastors in my life, older men that I love and appreciate and give me good counsel. He said, uh, and I've shared it before, but I'll share it again because I only have limited material. So um, he said, don't ever do anything out of need or opportunity, but only out of God's will. 
And I received that and I thought, that's good insight. And most of the pain in my life is when I, I didn't heed that advice. Is there a need for a significant spiritual leader at this point? Yes. Is there an opportunity for John? Absolutely. But he knows that's not God's will for him. Don't be moved by need. Somebody's got to do it. Opportunity. I could get a better job, promotion. I could take the deal. I could, I could go up the ladder. Will of God. John knew who he was. He knew who God made him to be. He knew what God made him to do. This is humility. Okay? This is like the, the company comes to you and says, we'd like you to be CEO. And you say, no, I think there's somebody else who do a better job. We'd like you to be the president. No, I don't think I'm management material. What? We'd like you to be the leader. No, actually, I feel like there's somebody else who's better. Do you know how much humility that takes? Let me say this about humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. We tend to think of, John doesn't say, oh, God's spirit isn't on me. I have no gifts. I'm not able. I can't, I don't. He doesn't think less of himself. He thinks more of Jesus and less of himself. That's why later he's going to say he must increase and I must decrease, decrease. The root word for humility literally is to know your place, to know your place. It takes humility to know your place and accept your place. It's going to take a lot of humility for John to say, that leadership position is not my place. It's going to take humility for the Lord Jesus to come along and say, that is my place. Some of you have aspired to positions that God has not destined for you. Be humble, accept who you are and what position that God has for you. Others of you, God wants you to be in a more significant, influential, and leadership position, but you're so concerned about yourself that you have not fulfilled the opportunity that God has given to you. That's not humility, it's pride, because you're still thinking about yourself. Some of you, humility will look like serving in a humble position. Some of you, humility will look like serving in a leadership position. Jesus and John are both humble. John just says, that's not my position. Jesus says, that is my position. They both operate in humility. And let me say this. We like to say at the Trinity Church, we live our lives kingdom down, not culture up. Okay? In the culture, is humility a virtue? No. Can you get a minor in it at college? What'd you minor in? I minored in humility. How did you do? I got straight A's. I was so good at it. It was unbelievable. <laughs> right? We, we don't think in terms of humility, but God honors humility. It says in James, says in Peter, says in Proverbs, God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself and he'll lift you up when it's time. Now, some of you immediately are looking at me saying, is Pastor Mark saying he's humble? Is Pastor Mark saying he's humble? No, I'm not humble. And I would say this, none of us can ever say, I'm humble. Because as soon as you do, you're like, and I just blew it. Right? You can't say you're humble. Humility is something that we always need to value. We always need to aspire toward. And we always need to be actively pursuing. Amen? Because our world is filled with pride. And pride is the virtue in our culture. But in the Bible, pride is not the solution. Pride, my dear friend, is the problem. The proudest person in the Bible is Satan, and the most humble person in the Bible is Jesus. It couldn't be more clear. The church father Augustine rightly said that pride is pregnant and gives birth to all sins. What that means is under sin is pride. Me first, me center, me only, my name, my fame, my achievements, my glory. Humility is Jesus first. Jesus is the center. Jesus' name above my name. Jesus' mission above my mission. Jesus' kingdom beyond all kingdoms. It's God-centered, God first, not me-centered, me first. And this is something that is so pernicious in our culture, this advancement of pride. Uh, Some years ago, 
there was a, a leader who took the Western stories of virtue. Because in every culture, there are stories that we tell, particularly to our children, to cultivate certain moral character or virtue in them. And this person took many of the great stories of Western civilization, put them together into a book of virtues so that we could read these to our children and they could become virtuous. Do you know what the one category that was missing? Humility. Because in the Western world, we do not value humility. In the kingdom of God, humility is greatly valued. Key number one to John's greatness, humility. Humility. He accepted his place and he tells them, I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah. I am not, a, I'm not the prophet. This would really benefit me, but that's not God's will for me. That's not who God made me to be. Let me say this for you, dear friend. If you are in God's will, you're doing a great job living your life. You don't need to be someone you're not. You don't need to do something you can't. You don't need to be someone else. You need to understand who God made you to be. Humbly accept that and you are great in the sight of God. And it doesn't matter what the culture says. It matters what Christ says. Amen? Okay. Second thing about John's greatness, serving. So it's Humility and serving, those are the keys to his greatness. Serving helps you understand yourself. John 1, 22 through 28. So they said to him, they're trying to figure out, who, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. Like the committee is waiting for a report, right? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. He quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. We'll talk about those guys. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Who gave you authority? Where's your, I get to baptize card. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Jesus has not yet entered onto the stage of history, but he's waiting in the wings. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, the region across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So John is baptizing and he's preaching. And here come the leaders and they want to give a report and account to a particular group. Let me just spend a moment on this. This group right here, the Pharisees. How many of you have heard of the Pharisees? You heard of them? It's always negative, right? You're such a Pharisee, which means you disagree with me. Okay, that's what that means. Uh, I'm right, you're wrong. You're a Pharisee. Okay, so Pharisee, we tend to use it in a very negative and pejorative way. As we go through John's Gospels, you're gonna, John's Gospel rather, you're gonna meet certain categories of people, certain groups. In that day, ancient Judaism, it was kind of like political parties today. So today we've got political parties. You've got the conservatives and the liberals or progressives. So in that day, the conservatives were the Pharisees, Fox News. And then there were the liberals, the Sadducees, CNN. Okay, so they, they were different groups. And they disagreed on issues and they had different perspective and they had different conclusions on what was wrong with a nation, what should be made right with a nation, and how people should respond to God's calling. So the Pharisees, let me talk about them. They are here making an appearance. And the Pharisees didn't start off all bad. In fact, Pharisee means separated one. That's what most scholars believe. And the Pharisees decided the culture is wandering away from God. People are sinning. Their behavior is inexcusable. We're having parades for things we should be having funerals for. Um, people are proud of things they should be ashamed of. The culture is declining. Morality is descending. And these things, these things need to stop. Therefore, we're gonna separate ourselves. We're not gonna partake of the same media. We're not gonna follow the same politicians. We're not gonna send our kids to those schools. Okay, let me just throw it out there. Does this sound familiar to anyone? You're like, please tell me they were the good guys. Please, Mark. 
how many of them, half of you moved to Arizona for these reasons. That's why we're the fastest growing county, the fastest growing city in America. Everybody's like, well, America's a dumpster fire. Go to Arizona and get a gun. That's why you're here. That's why you're here, right? Does he do this all the time? Does he just say whatever he thinks? Yeah, he does. That's why he's so controversial. Okay, so... uh, So the Pharisees start out as these people who are conservative and they want to get back to committed to the Bible. Is that bad? Say no. No, okay. The most famous Pharisee is a guy named Saul of Tarsus. You now know him as the Apostle Paul. An ancient historian, Josephus, says that this was the most powerful religious group in the first century. They were not a formalized group, but they were very, very popular. But eventually, they got off track. What happened? Why do I tell you this? What is he talking about? I love you, even though I yell at you. And just because I'm excited, I'm always excited when I get to talk about Jesus. Because I love you, and I love Jesus, and I love the Bible. And every time I open the Bible, I get so excited. I can't help but get excited. Okay? But my concern is we could be the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees were the people who were very excited about obeying the Bible. Is that a bad thing? No. I hope to be here for a long time and teach the Bible, and I want you to learn and grow. But I want to warn us that the more we learn, if we don't also learn to love well, we can end up becoming the Pharisees. Okay? Because here's the problem with the Pharisees. They had far more knowledge than they did love. Uh, Paul says it this way, knowledge puffs up with pride. Love builds up in relationship. It's not knowledge or love. It's knowledge and love. It's about knowing the Bible and the God of the Bible and loving God and loving people. Here's, let me make this very, very clear. You're not biblical unless you're relational. You're not biblical unless you're relational. They came to Jesus. They said, what's the tweet of the whole Bible? He says, Love the Lord your, it's not exactly what he said, but love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor. They said, Jesus, what's the whole point of the Bible? He said, love God, love people. That's relational. You're not biblical unless you're relational. The problem with the Pharisees was they wanted to make a point. They didn't want to build a relationship. You can think that you're always right and you're the critic and judge of everyone else. And as soon as you have that disposition, you're on the path to becoming a Pharisee. It doesn't mean that we don't believe in truth. We do believe in truth. It doesn't mean we don't believe in discernment. We do believe in discernment. But we believe that the goal is not to beat people, but to build people. So here's the problem with the Pharisees. They had the scriptures and their scribes. These are the official interpreters of the scriptures. So oftentimes you will see the Pharisees and the scribes working together. It would be like today, there's one singular leader and then they have a school and they have conferences and they have a book publishing house and then everyone listens to them. And if you disagree with them, you disagree with God. We need to be very careful that those who teach us the word of God are not placed alongside the word of God, but that we all remain humbly under the word of God. That was the problem with the Pharisees. They valued their teachers at the same level as scripture. And so if you disagreed with one of their teachers, you disagreed with God. This made them very arrogant, very proud, very judgmental, very self-righteous. So they show up and they don't make any relationship with John. They don't get to know him. His family was godly. He grew up in a ministry home. They don't get to know his story. They don't ask about his testimony. They just come to interrogate, not to listen. The same thing happens to the Lord Jesus. He's preaching and teaching. And you think the Pharisees would show up and say, we love to learn the Bible. Jesus, please say something and we'll write it down. Instead, they say, Jesus, it's time for you to sit down. We're here to teach. That's the heart of the Pharisee. The heart of the Pharisee is I never learn, I only teach. 
And if you disagree with me, you disagree with God because I know all that God has to say. There's an arrogance. There's an arrogance. We love the word of God. We believe the word of God. We trust the word of God. And you're not biblical unless you're relational. I just want to warn you. I don't think we're there. By God's grace, I pray we never get there. But because we are people who take the Bible seriously, we can also take ourselves seriously. And that's where all the problems begin. I think we should take the Bible seriously and not ourselves. Amen? That's, I'm just going to throw it out there as a recommendation. So those are the Pharisees, and they come to investigate and to interrogate John. John is doing three things. He's preaching, he's baptizing, and he's serving. In his preaching, he is a voice of one calling out, crying out in the wilderness. They've been waiting for him for hundreds of years since the promise in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. So here's what we believe. We believe in preaching. We believe that God spoke the world into existence, that everything came into being through the sheer force of the proclamation of God's word into human history. I absolutely, fundamentally believe in preaching. Preaching is not just talk giving or motivational lecturing. It is opening the word of God and bringing a word from God to the people of God so they can experience the joyful life of God. Amen? So John is a preacher. He's not just a sharer. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a motivator. He's a good old fashioned preacher. I like those guys very much. Just so you know. Okay. I, oh, really? Come on. What is it? Decaf Sunday? You, you, you can get a little excited with me. It's okay. So John's a preacher and he's a baptizer. He's baptizing. Hear me in this good, decent, moral, religious folks. These are not People in clear heels with their underwear as outerwear. These are not people. I shouldn't have said that, but it's true. And John's a guy who is calling to repentance good, devout Jewish people. These are people, they don't eat pork. They take the Sabbath off. They tithe 10%. They're faithful to their spouse. They've memorized the scripture. These are good, decent moral folk. And what he's saying is this, you need to repent to be baptized. You know why? Because moral people need Jesus. Spiritual people need Jesus. Devout people need Jesus. Decent neighbors need Jesus. It's not your work that saves you. It's his work that saves you. That ultimately, even the most moral, religious, devout, well-behaved, tax-paying, you know, constantly voting, well-intended person is kindling apart from Jesus. Okay, so it was offensive to them because you would baptize the, the dirty Gentiles like this Irishman. You wouldn't baptize the devout Jewish people. He's calling the devout Jewish people to repentance. And to demonstrate that with baptism, that I need to be cleansed from my sin like water cleanses me from filth. He's preaching, he is baptizing, he is serving. In that culture, in that day, you didn't pick a school. Like my oldest son, he's getting ready to go to college, so we're out looking at campuses and helping him navigate that next life stage decision. You didn't pick a school, and that day you picked a teacher. And you would ask that teacher to instruct you, and you would literally do life with them for a few years. This is a, a small relationship mentoring context. It's like Jesus and his 12 disciples, right? They're eating together, traveling together, doing life together. So what you would do is if you were accepted by a teacher, you would serve them humbly. You would do whatever they needed to do. You were considered like part of their staff. And this was to serve the teacher. The student would do culturally all of the same jobs as a slave, slave being the lowest of the low in that culture, with one exception. A slave would take your sandals off, a student would not. Because it was too nasty. How many of you don't like feet to start with? You just don't, right? No judgment, just an observation. Okay, you don't like feet. Now imagine the ancient road system in Rome. It's dirt, not paved. People are walking on it. Garbage is getting dropped on it. Animals are traveling on it. What do animals do? That, okay? So you're walking on the road, open-toed sandals. You walk for days and miles. 
What are your feet like when you get there? Nasty. I mean, it smells like Satan's breath. That's what your feet smell like. It's horrible. It's, you got stuff under your toenails that isn't even on the periodic chart. It's just nasty, amen? So you'd show up in the home and hospitality be like, okay, who's going to clean Tommy's feet? One, two, three, not it. Right? It would go to the lowest of the low, the slave. What John is saying is you think I'm a big deal because I'm on the stage. Jesus is over side stage. He's not yet walked onto the stage of history, but he's so much greater than me that once he gets here, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He says, Jesus is so great that I'm not even good enough to be his slave, let alone his student. That's the heart of a servant. Let me say this. You don't need to do great things. Anything you do for Jesus is a great thing because Jesus is great. We tend to think that the greatness is in what we do. The greatness is in who we do it for. If you do your dishes, if you raise your kids, if you forgive your enemies, if you pay your bills to the glory of God, that is greatness. Because it is done out of love for the greatness of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, in that day, they would not say, taking sandals off, that's a great thing to do. John says, it's not the greatness of the act, but the greatness of the one whom I serve that makes it great. This is the mindset of a servant. Um, There was an occasion where they came to Jesus and they asked him, how do we be the greatest? Remember that story? Some of you know it. Actually, it was John, the author of this book, who was one of the guys that asked that question. When I first read that as a new Christian, I thought, what an arrogant question. How do I be the greatest? What I love about Jesus, he didn't rebuke those who asked the question. He redirected them. He says, oh, you want to be great? Yeah, we do. Tell us. If you want to be the greatest, you should be the servant of all. Oh. See, because in the culture, it's about rising up. In the kingdom... It's about descending down. That's why Jesus comes down to us. He's humble. Our God is humble. Our God is humble. And he's a servant. That's where Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. The path to maturity is paved with humility and service. The path to greatness is paved with humility and service. They come to John. They're like, you're amazing. You're great. Are you this? Are you that? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? He says, two things you need to know about me. I'm a humble servant. That's all that matters. Don't worry about who I am. Worry about what I say. When he says, I'm a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. If all you hear is the voice, you don't see the face. It's not about the messenger. It's all about the message. Amen. That's what he's saying. I don't matter. I'm telling you about Jesus. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. This is the posture of a humble servant. What was the key to John's greatness? What is the key to your greatness? How can you be declared great in the sight of God? Humble servant. Humble servant. Humble servant. And then he's going to transition and he's going to tell us three things about Jesus because really that's all that matters. That's all that matters is that people know Jesus, that people meet Jesus, that people hear about Jesus, that people love Jesus. For the center of his life, John was not the center. The center of John's life was Jesus. So all he says is, I'm humble servant. Let's move on. Talk about something I really want to talk about. Let's talk about Jesus. Okay, so here's the first thing we learned. Jesus is the Lamb of God. John chapter 1, 29 and 30. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. Nobody knows Jesus at this point. They all know John. John is really popular. And here comes Jesus. And he said, behold the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Most religions have a false concept of God that their God only likes their kind. 
So whatever our nation or our group or our heritage is, our God likes us. He doesn't like everybody else. Jesus comes for the whole world. All nations, all languages, all tribes, all tongues, all cultures, all people, all history. We live in a world that is fractured, that is divided, that is separated by all kinds of things. And the only way that unity will ever come is if someone other than us is the center that pulls us together. His name is Jesus. He is the most popular person in the history of the world. He has the most large, long-standing movement in the history of the world, the church. He calls to himself people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and every language. And in the kingdom of God, there will be a throne and seated upon that throne will be Jesus. And around that throne will be people from every language, tribe, and tongue, all celebrating him, all worshiping him, all enjoying him as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. That's Jesus. John says, this is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John's his cousin. John's about six months-ish older. Technically, he is older and Jesus is younger. What he's saying is, actually, he's eternal. Jesus is, so he's a lot older than me. That's what he's saying. What does it mean that he is the Lamb of God? What does that mean? What does that mean? Think. These are Jewish people. All the way back in the Old Testament, second book of the Bible, Exodus, there was a godless Pharaoh, a king, ruled over a kingdom called Egypt. He enslaved God's people, a few million of them. He oppressed them. He abused them. And God wanted to deliver them so that they would be free to worship him. God gave Pharaoh and the Egyptians an opportunity to repent, to be saved. Because that's how great God is. So God warned them, let my people go or I will send trouble to you. I will show the most powerful nation on the earth that there is a kingdom that is more powerful. I will show the powerful Pharaoh that there is a king of kings and Lord of lords that has authority over him as well. Sends a man named Moses. And through Moses, God repeatedly warns there will be consequence unless there is repentance. And God is patient. So the first plague comes and the second plague comes. Warning, 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 warning. Until finally, everything culminates and escalates to the final plague. And it is the killing of the firstborn son. How many of you are a firstborn son like me? How many of you have a firstborn son? My oldest son is Zach. Imagine if somebody came to you and said, okay, it's serious now. You guys need to get right with the real God or you and your boy are gonna die. This is serious. Some of you say, how could God possibly do that? Well, he, he killed his own son so we could be saved, so... He does know what this experience is like. Death came to every home and the firstborn son died in every household with one exception. Those whose homes were literally covered by the blood of the lamb. Okay? So the story was, you could take a lamb without spot or defect showing sinlessness that animal would be slaughtered, put to death as a substitute for the family and their sin. This is a bloody, messy situation. You then would take the blood of the lamb and you would go outside and you would literally paint it over the doorpost, the doorway of your home. It was a way of showing publicly your faith internally. I acknowledge I am a sinner. I acknowledge that I have sinned against God. I acknowledge that the wage or penalty or price for sin is death. And I acknowledge that either I will pay for my own sin or someone who is sinless and unblemished and spotless will pay for me. 
What do our Jewish friends call this? Passover. Because it shows that God's wrath literally passes over those who in faith are trusting in the blood of the lamb. Okay, if you're here and you're Jewish, I love you. The whole Bible's about Jesus and everything was to get people ready for his coming, including Passover. God's people celebrated Passover year after year until the Lord Jesus shows up. And at what is called the Last Supper, he is celebrating the Passover meal. And he takes the bread and he says, this is my body. And he takes the wine and he says, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. What Jesus is showing is that he is the fulfillment of the Passover. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. And every year, the Jewish people would be celebrating the Passover. And here comes Jesus. And John sees him with great enthusiasm and zeal. And he cries out, finally, after thousands of years, we've all been waiting. Behold, 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 the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. Jesus is here. Jesus has come. The solution has been made. Friends, this is unbelievable. I know you come here with problems. Let me tell you, your greatest problem is sin. Your greatest problem is separation from God. All other problems pale in comparison to your greatest problem. And Jesus comes to take away sin. Jesus comes to forgive sin. Jesus comes to deal with sin. Jesus comes to take away your biggest problem and enter into a relationship with you through which he helps you with all of your other problems. Amen? Amen. Now, if you're a Christian, you're here today, you believe this. Amen? And you love this and you celebrate this and you're glad for this. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're like, what are you trying to do? Get me converted? For sure, that's exactly what I'm doing. Oh, why do you think I'm sweating? Yes, I'm that excited. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need Jesus because you have sin. And unless his death covers you, you will pay with eternal death. That's Jesus. First, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let me say this too. It's not just what Jesus said, but it's what Jesus did that's really important. Some people look at Jesus and say, I love his teaching, but do you believe in his death? Do you believe in the cross? Do you believe that God died in your place for your sins as your substitute? If you don't believe that, you don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. We love his teaching, but we trust in his sacrifice. Amen? That's why we got a cross in the church. We got a cross on the church. We got a cross outside of the church. Somebody asked me, why do you got so many crosses? To make sure you understand we believe in the cross. We believe that our God died in our place for our sins as our substitute, as our savior. And without him, sin is not taken away for anyone in the world. But by faith in him, he takes away the sin of anyone in the world. Amen? Okay. Second thing Jesus is, Jesus is spirit-filled. He's going to go back and talk about the baptism of Jesus. John 1, 31 through 33. I myself did not know him. John said, I didn't know how this was all going to play out. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So John is baptizing people for remission to deal with their sin. When Jesus comes and he's going to be baptized by John, he's not a sinner. He doesn't need remission. It's for revealing. It's an unveiling. He says, uh, and John bore witness. I saw the Holy Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
60% of Matthew, Mark, and Luke share similar material. John, 90% of his gospel is unique. It's not included in the other gospels. He wrote last. He was the last living eyewitness and disciple. So what happens is the other gospel writers write about Jesus' baptism and they tell the story in history. John comes along at the end and says, I, I, I want to make sure we didn't miss anything. And so he fills in some details, okay? So he doesn't tell us the whole story of Jesus' baptism because it's already written down. You could read it in, let's say, Luke's gospel, for example, or Matthew's gospel. And what he says is this. I know who Jesus is because I was there when God the Father told us who he was. He's talking about the baptism of Jesus. At the baptism of Jesus, the whole Trinity was present. Jesus goes underwater, foreshadowing his death, burial, resurrection. He comes out. God the Father speaks from heaven, says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's the highest authority you could possibly get, right? If a police officer shows up at your home, you say, show me your badge. Okay, they have authority. They have authority. Somebody in your company is in a management or leadership position. They tell you to do something. You say, well, they have authority. God the Father says from heaven, openly and publicly. Can you imagine being there? You're like, what? This is my son. I just assume it's a deep voice. I don't know. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And people be like, says who? Says God the Father, the highest authority in all of eternity and the king. There's no one above that. There's, you can't go, I don't agree with God the Father. Bring me the guy above him. There's nobody above him. That's it. So when the father says, Jesus is the son of God, this is the one whom I'm well pleased. This is the one history has been waiting for. This is the one you've been longing for. This is the one that the scripture was written regarding. There it all is. And the Holy Spirit descends upon him, what? In the form of a, of, there's the whole Trinity, God the father speaking, the Holy Spirit descending, Jesus present in the baptismal waters. Let me tell you about Jesus. He's the most significant person who's lived in the history of the world. John is the greatest mere mortal. Jesus is the greatest of all. He wasn't just called man of the year. He was named man of the millennium. More songs written to him, more books written regarding him, more paintings painted of him than anyone who's lived in the history of the world. The Christian church is the biggest, longest standing movement in the history of the world. Billions of people love, follow, know, serve, would die right now for Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's what it's all about. And as we look at his life, the question is, how did he do it? How did he live it? As we examine John's life, let's pivot and examine Jesus' life. How did he live his life? And could we live, his, we, could we live a life like that? Let me say this about Jesus. He's fully God, fully man, Emmanuel, God with us. While on the earth, he retained, I want to be very careful, thread a needle here theologically because I'm a nerd, okay? He retained all of his divine attributes, but he chose not to constantly avail himself to them so that he could be humble as John was and he could sympathize with us. When Jesus learned the scriptures, how did he learn it? When Jesus overcame temptation, how did he overcome it? When Jesus forgave his enemies, how did he forgive them? Careful Bible reading, my friend. The Holy Spirit descended and remained. Remained. The Holy Spirit descended and remained. The other gospels that give the account of Jesus' baptism do not include this detail. Not only did the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus openly and publicly to reveal him, but also the Holy Spirit remained on him, stayed on him, rested upon him, never departed from him. What does this tell you about Jesus' life? Jesus lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what it means to be spirit-filled? It means to be like Jesus. The Holy Spirit doesn't make you weird. It makes you like Jesus. 
If you love Jesus and you want to be like Jesus, you need the Holy Spirit. You need to invite the Holy Spirit to help you to have a personal relationship with him. We talk a lot in Christianity about a personal relationship with Jesus. I believe in that. But Jesus had a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. And you need a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit if you want to become like Jesus. What this means is that God's power can live in you, bringing you the emotional health of Jesus. That God's power can live in you and begin to renew your mind and transform your desires so that increasingly you become more and more like Jesus and the life and the power and the presence of the person of the Spirit of God flows through you so that you can follow in the footsteps of Jesus. There was some years ago, I'll use an analogy, uh, my family and I, it was uh, like a winter break and somebody, we were living up in the Northwest and somebody said, why don't you use our cabin, go to the beach? And I thought, that'll be fun. And then I got there and it was mid-30s, like 100 mile an hour winds, that's what it felt like. Nobody's on the beach for obvious reasons. We got our parkas on, boots on. That's it. We're going to go for a walk on the beach. We're the only people out there. Literally, my youngest son was little at the time. I grabbed him because I was afraid he was going to roll away like a tumbleweed, right? Just gone. So we're trying to go for a walk. If you've, have you ever seen a car that they take into an auto body shop and they sandblast it to get the paint off? There's no need for that. Just park them on the beach in Washington. And it'll take care of itself. Sand is blowing so headstrong. We're just eating it. We can't even move. We just, that's it. We surrender. We can't be in the beach today. It's too cold. It's too wet. It's too horrible. So we jumped in the suburban. We went into town and tried to find something else to do, maybe a bowling alley or something. And we see a kite store. A kite store. I thought, this is a brilliant businessman right here. So we pulled over, we go into the kite store and all the kids were little at the time. And the kids are like, oh my gosh, look at all the kites. So, okay, everybody pick your favorite kite. So they all pick a kite, get string. We go outside, the kites are dead, the kites are lifeless until they are filled with the power of a force that is beyond themselves. And that power fills them and it lifts them. Next thing you know, my kids are really excited. Because now the kite is soaring and it's powerful and it's filled and it's dancing and it's alive and it's vibrant and it's joyful and it's exciting. My friends, that is life in the spirit. Life in the spirit is being filled with the power of God, being filled with the presence of God, being lifted up above your circumstances, dancing, soaring, free in the presence of God and, 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 and enjoying his presence and the life that he gives you and the new perspective that he provides for you as he fills you. This, this is why the Bible says in Ephesians 5.18, I think it is, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So many of God's people are like kites that never get to soar. And what we see in Jesus, he is filled with the Spirit. He is led by the Spirit. He is empowered by the Spirit, that the Spirit remains on him, that the Spirit abides in him. I could go on and on and on. I've looked at this in all four Gospels. It's one of the greatest revelations I've had in the last decade of Bible study, that Jesus had joy, that Jesus had health, that Jesus had power by the Holy Spirit. And then not only, this is what's amazing. This is so amazing. I don't know why this isn't on the news every night. It's so amazing. He, he says this. Where is it? I lost myself. <laughs> this is he who Jesus gives you the Holy Spirit. What? Jesus' life is not just to be admired. Jesus' life is to be experienced. Okay? And for those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, you're a whole new person, whole new life, whole new power, whole new joy. Amen? Wow. 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 You know what? The Bible tells you to do things you can't do. The Bible tells you to be someone you can't be until you're filled with the Spirit. Then that's who you become and that's what you do.
All right, I'm excited. Both of you as well. Okay, last one. John tells us two things about himself. He's a humble servant. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is a spirit-filled and giver of the spirit. And Jesus is the Son of God. John 1.34. John says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God. The New Testament 124 times calls Jesus the Son of God. 165 times Jesus calls God his Father. This is this intimate, warm relationship between father and son. You've heard the language, you know, like father, like son. It means they have a lot of things in common. That's exactly what it's referring to, that that Jesus shares all the divine attributes. Jesus shares the eternal authority. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father, because they they, they are so similar and, and identical in character and attribute. That's what he's saying. Now, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. This is a declaration of his divinity. This is his declaration that he alone is God walking on the earth. Those who heard him understood this. John 5, 17 and 18, Jesus says, My father is working until now and I am working. This is why they were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You know what? When Jesus said, he is my father, I am his son. They said, you can't say that. You're saying you're equal to him. Is that what Jesus is saying? That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, yes, I and the Father, we are God. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Eternal union and communion. If you receive me, you receive him. You reject me, you reject him. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I bring the exact divinity to the earth that he possesses. His attributes are my attributes. His authority is my authority. Furthermore, it was the Father himself who said at the baptism, this is my son. I have good news for you. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I have good news for you. Jesus Christ lived a spirit-filled life and gives you the Holy Spirit to live a powerful new life. And number three, I have really good news for you. Jesus is the Son of God, that He is alive and well, that He is ruling and reigning, that He rules over a kingdom that will never end, that includes citizens of all nations. And he sends you the Holy Spirit to be filled by his presence and power. And he gives you the identity of a child of God. I'll read it to you. Romans eight fifteen. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I have good news for you. We're going to worship God now. We're going to live kingdom down, not culture up. We're going to receive the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to rejoice because our sins are forgiven by Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we're going to rejoice that not only is Jesus the Son of God, but we get adopted into the family through faith in Him. And God knows you. God loves you. God cares for you. God's heart is for you. God's eternity is with you. And just as Jesus was filled with the Spirit, just as John was filled with the Spirit, we too today want to come together to sing and celebrate. You want to sing with me? Let's sing a little bit. Humble servants come to make great the one who is great. And so I'm going to invite you to partake of communion. That is remembering Jesus' broken body and shed blood, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We're going to respond with singing, rejoicing, celebrating and longing for the coming of Jesus. Father God, we thank you. We thank you so much that you are our Father, that you know us, that you love us, that you name us, that you give us life. That Lord God, you want to be with us and we want to be with you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming humbly. 
We thank You for living the life we could not live, the sinless life. We thank You for dying the substitutionary death that we should die, the death for sin. And we thank You that You got out of Your grave and You conquered Satan, sin, death, hell, and overcame the wrath of God so that we could become the sons and daughters of the living God, filled with the Holy Spirit, destiny on our lives, not having to do what is great, but doing whatever You call us to do, because we do it in service to a great God who says that we are great if we are humble, and we are great if we are filled with the Spirit. Holy Spirit, we invite Your power and presence now. We invite You to humble us. We invite You to fill us. We invite You to come us to be servants like John and to be worshipers of Jesus in whose name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.